Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Now here is your host, Adam Proctor. Welcome everybody to part two of this week's episode. It's called Make State Theory Great Again. Joining me as a reminder is Raphael Kachaturian. We're going to break down Marxian and Neo-Marxian state theory from Gramsci to present. So approximately that's about from World War II to now. Towards the end of the episode, we're going to make a passionate case for the importance of a Marxian state theoretical orientation to the project of building socialism for regular-ass people. This isn't just an academic or an intellectual exercise. This is absolutely essential because, as I argue, state theory is quite literally the way that we see the interaction of class forces in the state and the distribution of power in society. So stay tuned for all of that. I've got some really great reviews from part one. People have really enjoyed this. They're eating it up. And I'm I'm really thankful for that because I was afraid that this would be a little bit too hyper-theoretical for some of you folks. So I appreciate the the, the warm reception. Head on over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and support the New Left Agenda today. Uh, This series that I've got coming up here, Labor in the Capitalist State, I'm really excited about it. This is part one, and the reception so far has been hot fire. So thanks so much to all of my patrons past and present. We just hit the 300 patron mark for the first time. That's a big milestone. Keep that coming, and uh, we've got some really great things coming around the bend. Lots of weekly subscriber-only content, B-sides, hot takes and field notes, post-game. We're going to do it all. I'm going to try to be creative here and give my guests an opportunity to stretch their legs and have some good chats to spill the beans (laughs) for my patrons. So without further ado, I'm going to bring you a quick song. I hope to inspire you with this, uh, this, this message as to why we should make state theory great again. And then uh, without further ado, I'll bring you part two of my interview with Raphael Kachaturian. Enjoy, folks. Let's use Gramsci as a, as a jumping off point to talk about uh, getting into the neo-Marxian state debate. Sure. 
of the late 1960s. What do you think the key debates that Gramsci brings in? I mean, he seems to straddle the line between the so-called instrumentalist and so-called structuralist side of things. We can break that down soon. He's very fertile ground there. So what do you think are the main fractures and rifts? Uh, there's a kind of resurgence of interest in Gramsci in the late 1960s and you know through the 1970s, primarily in, um, in Italy, but also in, in France, um, where uh, people kind of are, start to read him again in a new light and try to apply some of his theories to in a more, I guess you could say, systematic manner, because of course, his prison notebooks are very elusive in that sense. There's not a very there's not a lot of coherent theory there that's there that that you don't have to reconstruct, mm-hmm. but you have to sort of always work out some of these elements that are sometimes even confusing or contradictory. Um, but really, really the- reading Gramsci is kind of like the Da Vinci Code. <laughs> like you can imagine Tom Hanks, it's Tom Hanks in the Da Vinci Code movie, right? I think I only saw part of it once. Or you can imagine like Tom Hanks running around, uh, you know, trying yeah. to crack the Gramsci Code. Uh, because to be clear for our audience, you mentioned he was imprisoned by the fascist, re- the Mussolini fascist regime in Italy in the 1930s, and uh, so he a lot of his writings had to pass uh, the censors, uh, you know, when he would pass these writings out of prison, and so. You know, there's a whole lot of debate in Gramsciology, you might say, about how to interpret certain words that actually meant other things, certain phrases that actually meant other things. And there's been some significant advances in the literature on that in the last 10 years or so, but the, the jury is still very much out. So you're, you're right to point to that kind of confusion and that, but that's also a productive, uh, productive oh, enterprise, right? I think that's absolutely. kind of what you're getting yeah. at, right? Yeah. So uh, just to sort of turn back to the original question, then the the neo-Marxist debates, this literature primarily emerges in Western Europe in the mid to late 1960s uh, in West Germany, in France, in Italy and in England. Um, And what this literature tries to do or the kind of gaps that this scholarship tries to fill in is, you know, the absence of a of a coherent theory of the state in Marx and Engels, or at least a very clearly outlined theory of the state. And then some of the, to, to fill in the gaps of some of the subsequent interpretations that you get in Lenin and in Gramsci. So they're mostly influenced by Gramsci, but um, they're always kind of looking for textual references back in, in the other sort of so-called classics. So the, the main divisions within that literature, I guess you could say, boil down to maybe three conceptions that people usually look at, and that's instrumentalist theories, structuralist theories, and class struggle approaches or theories. Mm -hmm. So uh, I don't know if you want to talk about the Miliband-Kuwantis debate now or break down what each one of these meant first, but... um, Sure. So let's. I'm glad you brought up those distinctions uh, because they're they're operative throughout the history of of Marxian uh, state theory. So let's break down each one uh, separately. And of course, we're just on the brink for those Miliband or Poulancis heads out there. Uh, you're on the edge of your seat because you can tell. Uh, you just can't wait. You're you're salivating like Pavlov's dog. Uh, yeah, because all, you know all ten of them out there. <laughs> all ten of you. All do- there's a baker's dozen, I would say, including you and I. Uh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> we're about to get into the Miliband Poulancis debate, but let's talk about the the way that that's framed and the distinctions uh, along the line. Mm-hmm. So let's start with yeah, instrumentalism, structuralism, and the, and the sort of class struggle model. Let's break those down. All right. Yeah. Sure. So 
Um, and before we even say all of these differences, um, it's I think it's important to point out what they shared in common, which is a, a concern with the way that um, the social democratic order of post post-war Western Europe was able to maintain itself in this kind of um, model of stability, um, sort of, you know, the glorious 30 years from 1945 to 1975 or so. Mm-hmm. So all of these competing theories, I think, are trying to account for the same thing, which is that why was there not a revolution in the West after, you know, after 1945? And what is the relationship between the capitalist state and left political movements most broadly? frame. So instrumentalist accounts basically argue that there's a there's a kind of uniformity of interests between the economically dominant class and those individuals who are most prominent most prominently in control of the state and various state institutions. So um, they kind of attribute they they explain the stability of capitalism and of the state by virtue of things like interpersonal networks between, you know, big capital and so-called state managers, mm-hmm. commonality of interests, shared ideology, basically a kind of common worldview that prevents the state from acting in any way that is opposed to the interests of big capital. So instrumentalism, of course, is interesting because no one really called themselves an instrumentalist. It's a label that was attached later on to people like C. Wright Mills, who was never really a Marxist. Mm-hmm. Um, to Ralph Miliband, to William Domhoff, and to some other figures. But more than anything, it was a kind of, it was a foil for this next account that I'm going to talk about, which is the structuralist theories. Okay. Um, which, you know, if instrumentalism is supposedly very crude, structuralism is much more refined. It emerges from um, the contributions of Althusser and Balibar in the mid to late 1960s and argues that basically the capitalist state is objectively objectively and structurally situated within the capitalist mode of production, which means that this it really does not matter who is actually in charge of the state apparatus, what their personal networks are, what their personal ideologies might be, because by virtue of the states being enmeshed within capitalism, it can only act in a way that reproduces both the capital system and by proxy its own existence. And of course, the work of Nikos Poulantzis, uh, at least his earlier writings, are usually brought up as an example of this kind of approach. Um, And then finally, the kind of um, class struggle theories are were ways to, I think, to moderate some of the overtly structuralist claims of, you know, this previous approach um, to argue that the state structures class conflict. But class conflict then has a feedback effect on the way that state institutions operate and, you know, whose interests they, they act in right, right. and advance. Um, so usually the work of Fred Bloch, Eric Olin Wright, some of the more contemporary sociologists, you know, of that generation are seen as the representative of that approach. That's a good, uh, that's a nice little survey. Um, where, just to be clear, um, I mean, it's, it's really becoming apparent to me in this conversation where we're already well over an hour. Um, I'll put the full version up on Patreon, but we'll have to cut some of this down just a little bit for, for, for the masses so we don't lose too many people. Uh, however, it's, it's, you know, this is just episode one 
of at least a five part series. It may end up being longer than that. We're, we're going back to school and on a uh, dead punnet society. Yeah. So you are our founding theoretical, uh, uh, beacon, if you will. So if we don't cover all of this in, in fine grain detail, that's okay. Cause we will certainly be returning to it. Uh, definitely the, the post-war stuff. Uh, so with this, I really wanted to lay the foundations of the state and the broad kind of like connection that you tie between the kind of yeah. ideological function of, of developing a state theory along with the kind of material political uh, context of all of the various state theories. And I think we've done it's a, that really It's a big well. task. <laughs> it's big and you're doing a really great job. I'm, I'm enjoying the hell out of this. I think my, I know my audience is going to really like it as well. So let's, let's dive in. Let's get into the famous or infamous rather Miliband Poulancis debate. And we don't have to go, you know, sort of uh, charge by charge, but let's just talk mm-hmm. about the broad strokes and how, uh, you know, I didn't live, we, neither you nor I lived through that, but our mentors did. And they have told me, as I'm sure they've told you, that that was really a defining moment on the international left in that time. Right, like whether you defined yourself as a Milibandian or as a Palancian was was really a, a, a one. I mean, people there were probably fistfights in some places over this over this shit. Yeah, right? I can I can imagine. Um, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. really, yeah, the the debate's an interesting time because it. Um, so uh, Clyde Barrow, who's a you know very prominent scholar of of Marxism, has this to say about it, and I, I really like the way that he puts it. Is that it? Uh, the Miliband-Polancis debate put this question of, can there be a Marxist theory of the state on the table? And at the same time, it foreclosed the possibility of ever arriving at any coherent theory. Um, you know, <laughs> what because, a tease. Uh, what a tease. Yeah, right? I know. Um, the, so, and basically, um, the, the whole debate originated in response to Miliband's book, uh, The State and Capitalist Society, which was published in 1969. And Poulancis wrote a, you know, a, a very interesting and somewhat critical review of it in mm-hmm. the New Left Review that, that same year, um, which then prompted two more responses by Miliband, one of which was a review of Poulancis' own book, Political Power and Social Classes, which was, you know, even much more critical than that. And then Poulancis responded, Leclau responded. So there was a kind of a, an exchange of about uh, six essays in all. And the, what was at stake in this debate was this question of can there be a Marxist methodology for studying this abstract object? Mm-hmm. Um, because both Miliband and Poulantzas, I think, kind of agreed that the state is, as such, is not a thing, um, but it's a, it's a way of representing certain relations of power that, while not themselves immediately tangible, have sort of systematic or structural effects on society as a whole. And... But they had very different ways of approaching this. So Miliband, for example, has what we would call an institutionalist approach, where he says, all right, let's look at what are the concrete institutions that we tend to call the state and how do they act, you know, in relation to each other and who are the people who then, you know, have the most prominent voices within those institutions? What social class do they come from? Mm -hmm. And how, how does this then help perpetuate capitalism in Western societies. And Poulancis comes at it from a much more abstract, if you will, way of thinking about this, because he's, at this point, he's still very much grounded in Althusserian epistemology. So he, and so he argues that we can't study the state just by looking at what 
state institutions are there out there empirically, because our empirical representation of them is always going to be tainted by the dominant ideology in society. So we need to actually go back to Marx, Engels, and Lenin, and Gramsci, and parcel out of their writings a coherent abstract theory of of the state as such, the state in uh, the capitalist state. And only then can can we bring this framework to bear upon specific variations of the state, you know, in various countries, in various points of historical time and so forth. Mm -hmm. So really the debate between the two became sidetracked where it was no longer a debate about sort of specific states or specific state activities, but more a debate about the methodology that we bring to study this topic, which the debate kind of left this very much unresolved. So what it did on one hand, as Barrow says, it kind of put the, the, this question on the table, but then it fragmented Marxist theories of the state into a variety of trajectories and research agendas that were not always compatible with each other in terms of their underlying theoretical uh, frameworks. Right. So, I mean, maybe some of the, to, to try to distill some of this out, I mean, there's so much there. You did a, I mean, that was a good overview, but just critical takeaways from my audience. The Millibandian approach seems it really shares a, a kind of a intellectual lineage with C. Wright Mills, who might be somebody that uh, my listeners are more immediately familiar with. They've certainly maybe read them and read Mills in their sociology courses in college or or they've come across his, um, you know, his power elite notion or, or whatever else. And so Miliband is concerned with uh, the folks who are at the top rungs of society and how they reproduce themselves. You know, they, they, they talk, they, they go to the same social clubs, they, they go to the same university, the elite colleges, universities, they um, are, uh, yeah, they, they attend they go to each other's houses and, and, and social yep. events, and, and there's a certain kind of socialization into the ruling class that way, which which gives them a certain uh, unity of action, you might say, mm-hmm. across the various institutions. Is, is that a fair uh, sort of assessment? Yeah, absolutely. And then Polancis, I won't give my – I have a fairly idiosyncratic reading of Polancis, and it's, I'm still developing it, but maybe I'll unleash that on the masses someday. But today's not, a day, <laughs> the, today's not the day for that. So, But I think, you know, for me, this is what I love about Polancis, and this is why I think his Althusserian um, – and we won't get into Louis Althusser. He's known for his uh, ideological state apparatuses, right, and this notion of interpolation that – yeah, that subjects. And if you've come across this, listen up. If you haven't, ignore it. <laughs> so for 30 <laughs> seconds, here we go. The idea that subjects are interpolated uh, into the sort of capitalist ideology uh, as as someone would be hailed by a police officer when a poli- when you're walking down the street and you hear a cop uh, from the sidewalk say, hey, you. And you turn mm-hmm. around in response to that, you're being interpolated by power. You're being integrated and subjectivized into the power order, into the ideological power structure. Um, and ISAs, these ideological state apparatuses, uh, are things like schools, churches, um, you know, other political uh, sort of ideological uh, apparatuses. This really harkens back to, to Gramsci in, in a big way in the way that you sort of spelled yeah, that out. absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. And there's certainly a Gramscian reading of, of Althusser uh, that happens. 
uh, but we won't get into those debates. But the, my my favorite takeaway from the from Polansis in terms of his Althusserian moment is to say that actually ideology is something that we as socialists are we're always going to have to contend with that because the humanists. I'm going to get a lot of shit for this maybe from the humanists, but that's fine. I'm, I'm being vulgar here and breaking things down in sim- simplistic terms. That active contention of humanists out there. That, right, right, right. The other bakers dozen out there. Uh, <laughs> they're out there. Believe me. It's odd. It's yeah. weird, man. They, they're not even like holed up in grad school. Like, you know, they're just, you know, like tech people during the day. Well, and they, and they do read they know their, humanists? That's the question. Maybe not. Maybe or, not. Or are they interpolated into it? There you go. There you go. So the humanists would say, you know, and there, there's a streak of this in Marx that like our true species being is revealed in the communist mode of production or just in the absence of capitalism. Right. So once we dismantle capitalism, we will then all be free to live our authentic sort of species being and uh, and therefore, my, the takeaway is that under communism, under socialism, there's no such thing as ideology. Right, things just are as they are. I guess you might say. And Social relations become completely transparent to to themselves and to each yes, other. Yes, much much better put than I'm sort of bumbling along. <laughs> but but what Althusser's main contribution and Poulancis really develops this, I think, in important directions, is to say that no, that's that's absurd. There's always going to be ideology, right? Like there there even in in, in socialism, in communism, uh, they were potent critics of the Soviet Union. Uh, because of this, because they recognize that, no, 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 the Soviet Union is not post-ideology. Like they have their own sort of ideological formations that come from the kind of alignments and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, I don't know if you have any more. You, you could build on that. Um, go for it because <laughs> I'm sort of stumbling. <laughs> no, I think the only thing I would add is that, um, you know, uh, this kind of comes back to Gramsci and it comes back to this question of where we draw the boundaries of the state. Right. Because um, then ideology is, you know, if ideological state apparatuses um, are not specifically state apparatuses, so they're not just, um, you know, uh, the the bureaucracy or uh, the executive branch or parliament, but their schools, their um, trade unions, their Mm -hmm. their organizations that we nominally consider to be in the private sphere, um, this you know, it, it brings up this question of this juridical distinction between state and civil society, ah, between yes. public and private, like where we draw the boundary between the two. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and this kind of comes back to this, you know, the question of um, how expansive of a definition of the state are we working with? So um, Miliband, for example, had a much more circumscribed understanding of the state as specific, specifically public institutions of power, Right. Whereas Polancis has a much more expansive understanding that includes these kinds of ideological institutions as well. Yeah, well put. And, and that's, a, that's a good place to go now with Polancis in terms of the state is understood as this kind of Gramscian integral state, which, encomp- which is a structured field of class forces. It's the, it's the, it's the condensation mm-hmm. of the balance of class forces at any given moment in history, in historical time. Um, I like that word, yeah. the condensation. It's a beautiful line, I think, from state power socialism. Yeah, uh, and it captures the way in which the class, uh, the, the 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 state and, and institutions are kind of a snapshot of the balance of class forces at any given moment. Now, 
not to get too far in the weeds, but that conception struggles to deal with the uh, the uh, materiality of institutions and the stubborn uh, stickiness, you might say, of social relations. That even once the balance of class forces has shifted, institutions have a certain inertia. They don't like to change. And so Palancis really struggled with grappling with that, like the dynamism of the balance of understanding the state as a balance of class forces. Yeah. But then on the other hand, he struggled with trying to square that circle to encompass the way in which institutions themselves are oftentimes like anachronistic, right? Like you can imagine, look at the Supreme Court. Look at what the fucking Supreme Court's going to be uh, in three years' time. It's going to be full of troglodytes. And right. uh, you can imagine if we take over Congress and the, you know, uh, with this, you know, political revolution of Bernie Sanders of, you know, sort of soft social Democrats or whatever. Yeah. You can imagine after 2020, right, because of the materiality of the institution of the Supreme Court, there's going to be a real problem there where it's not going to reflect the current balance of class forces in the state. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so that, that's a, there's a strength there of Palancis and there's also kind of like um, a problem, but it also signals forward uh, into the kind of Blockian or other kind of uh, conception of the state. Maybe you can sort of riff on that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think you raised like a really important point here because um, so Palancis last book, which you mentioned state power socialism published in 1978, um, in which it's kind of a transitional work to it towards, um, I think some other things he would have written before his premature death. Um, but he, there he does argue that state institutions are not simply autonomous powers in their own right, but they're, they're class, like you said, they're condensations of certain class relations and the state ultimately is itself a class relation, um, or, um, not even so much a class relation as a social relation. Um, and, but this raises a whole host of questions about political strategy. And I, I read State Power Socialism as a book that's trying to grapple with left political strategy in relation to the state. Because he, you know, he also wouldn't think that something like um, the, the second international strategy of occupying certain state institutions and working from within the state um, are going to be sufficient. Because you're always going to have other reactionary institutions within that same you know, constellation or framework, they're going to position themselves against it. So you need, he argues you need both. You need a kind of inside outside strategy in which a left political movement tries to secure certain influential positions within the state apparatus, but also build its own hegemony outside in these nominally private institutions in which I think Palancis is kind of riffing on Gramsci here as well. Um, so, but yeah, and um, as you said, I think the understanding of the state as um, something that's almost like a sedimentation, right? So there's, as time goes on, there are layers and layers of policies of social relations that come to have an effect, but they're always sort of, so the underlying layer is always eroding while the new layer is being built. Um, so it's not so much a question of seizing the state and transforming it in a single single uh, sweeping motion, but rather um, kind of chipping away at it as if it's like a, you know, again, maybe to use this metaphor of like a block of granite or something. Right, right. Um, but yeah, and then the class struggle theories, which I think is what Poulantis is getting to, really argue that you need, basically they argue that you need this moment of um, outside pressure as well for the state to 
be more responsive to the interests of the left or to more democratic movements more broadly. So Bloch, for example, he kind of argues that there's a state managers ultimately follow policies because of um, the structural relations that they're put in. So they have to reproduce the conditions for the accumulation of capital because that's what then um, also provides the state and their own positions with a certain kind of legitimacy that they want to maintain. Mm-hmm. But Bloch thinks that um, outside pressure, for example, like what you had with this, in the case of the New Deal, this kind of mobilization of the left ultimately led to a more, um, to the emergence of a more friendly policy of the state towards left groups, towards Democrats, towards um, labor unions and these organizations rather than towards the interests of capital. So let's take it to the the strategic uh, sector for a little while because we've really gotten into the weeds. We've gotten some really great distinctions between the instrumentalist, the structuralist, uh, and the class struggle approach. We've talked about the Miliband uh, Palantzis debate. There's way more to say about that, uh, you know. Uh, so if you're if you're hungry for it, uh, reach out to me, shoot me a message, and, and I'll point you in the right direction to get some readings on this stuff. Uh, and that goes for the rest of the episode as well. Uh, you can certainly reach out to me at Dead Pundit Society, and, and I'll give you all of the reading that you could possibly stomach. And if I don't have enough, I'm sure Raphael will, uh, will be able to point you in the right direction. He's got uh, yep. a 400-page dissertation to show for it. So uh, <laughs> no problems there, people. Yep, so let's go to the strategic stuff. We're all socialists here. We want to change the world. So there's, there's a direct import there. One of the, one of the ways that Polancis gets uh, sort of attacked on the socialist left and this has somewhat fallen out of fashion as time goes on necessarily. But but the late, great Ellen Mason's Wood uh, wrote a, a scathing polemic of Palancis and sort of accused him of setting uh, the stage for this move away from the Marxist conception of the state. For Are you thinking of the retreat from the retreat from class? The retreat from class, right, right, yeah. a- among others. And so, you know, there, there's a way in which um, – that is also now we can talk about the autonomization of the political realm until we turn blue in the face. You have a couple articles about that very thing, mm-hmm. uh, but but let's intertwine state autonomy and, and we'll explain what that is. Let's intertwine the appearance of state autonomy in the 1980s with this attempt to develop a democratic road to socialism in the 1970s. Uh, because mm-hmm. it seems that the devolution of social democracy in Europe, right? There were a lot of brave projects in the in the in the late sixties and, and into the nineteen seventies, and Francis Mitterrand, uh, yep. you know, runs up against uh, the contradictions of global capitalism. Of course, we saw that in Chile tragically, but there were a lot of other instances of how this played out in Greece and elsewhere, where it seemed like there were really promising social democratic movements, uh, both parliamentary and politically, uh, to go beyond capitalism. And they all ran aground when global capitalism ran aground uh, in the late 70s. And so that's when we see, once again, uh, material and political uh, forces, material and political circumstances, condition, state theoretical orientation. Surprise, surprise. Here we are again. The 1980s, you see the appearance of state autonomy. So break down that critique of Palancis for us and tell us how this state autonomy appears in the 1980s. Yeah, so um, the, this question of state autonomy is interesting because Palancis, in a lot of his works, writes about 
relative autonomy of the capitalist state, which basically means that um, the capitalist state, in order to successfully reproduce the conditions of capitalism, must maintain some distance from um, the interests of any particular faction of the capitalist class. So it basically needs to mediate the common interests of the capitalist class as a whole um, and turn them into state policy, into political policy. Um, so for obvious reasons, then you see the state is not directly under the control of any particular um, group of people. Um, and the, But the, the kind of state autonomy school that you're talking about comes from the late 1980s is actually, confusingly enough, a critique of that. Because they still argue that Poulantas is too much invested in uh, class reductionism. Right, right, so they, right. they kind of see it as um, trying to do some innovative things in terms of breaking with the class reductionism that Marxism has traditionally been known for. But it's still way too abstract and it's not kind of like historically specific uh, in terms of the cases he looks at. And it's too socially or class reductivist. If I may so, jump in, um, it seems it seems like, you know, the Palances and we Palancians, I certainly put myself in this category, we can't catch a break because for the right. kind of bourgeois <laughs> theorists, we are just class reductionists. Yeah. And for the, I don't know, hardcore orthodox Marxists, whatever, you know, you might want to call them, we're yeah. bourgeois reformists. You know, we're, yeah. we've, yeah. we've devolved the true Marxian uh, state theory. So we kind of, you know, it's a lose-lose to be a Palancian these days. It really but I, is. But really I want to break down that <laughs> distinction. There's a really great interview that appeared in Marxism Today. I think it was Stuart Hall, actually, who was interviewing him at the time. And it was yeah. it was it was published just a few months before his death. Uh Palancis suffered from depression uh, uh you know uh, throughout his whole life. He underwent shock treatments, all of the kind of horrible, horrific stuff that people uh, with with that kind of mental illness underwent in the sixties. And he eventually committed uh, suicide. He threw himself out of an eight-story window or some such thing during a, a, a manic episode, I believe is what we would call it now, that he was having at that time. So very tragic, uh, untimely death. But a couple of months before that, in this interview with Marxism Today, you know, they asked him, so what is your relationship to the, the relations of production? Because you've argued that, yes, there is this relatively autonomous political realm there is this class of state actors that have to see themselves as one step removed from the immediate needs of the capitalist class, right? So the state isn't an executive committee of the bourgeoisie necessarily, but the state right. has to have the interests of capitalists as a whole, the long-term interests of capitalism as a whole in mind, which oftentimes puts them at odds with, with individual capitalists, um, in fact, it necessarily puts them at odds with individual capitalists. And so you see different state projects and different power blocks emerging as a result of those intra-class conflicts. Now, uh, orthodox classic Marxism, classical Marxism wants to talk about uh, inter-class conflict. Palancian mm -hmm. sort of state theory is really concerned primarily, I think, with intra-class conflict insofar as there are divisions yes. between the ruling various elements of the ruling class and various elements of the state. Um, and the, the fight for power uh, is going to play out along those lines and who can universalize their project, their, their own specific intra-class project at the level of, of the capitalist state. And Really interesting stuff there, but so Palancis goes a long way in in trying to insist that actually the political realm 
has its own logic and we should take it even as Marxists, we, we should take the political realm much more serious for its own sake. Yes. At, at, yes. It's relatively autonomous from the economic sphere uh, because it necessarily has to be because the state managers ha- like, you know, uh, one, one example that Leo Panich uh, gives prominent state theory guy, mentor of mine, he says, well, yeah, sure. Goldman Sachs is, uh, you know, kind of what do they call them? Government Sachs, right? They're in and out of the U.S. <laughs> Department of Treasury. Mm-hmm. Uh, you see that now with the Trump administration as well. However, um, you know, the, when the Goldman Sachs CEO takes up the head of the U.S. Treasury Department, he is no longer, uh, you know, the, the, the chief executive officer of Goldman Sachs. He's the chief executive officer of the American state and the U.S. dollar. And so he has to think differently and, and come up with different calculations. Yeah, he has a collective responsibility versus, a, you know, nominally a private one or a, just one for his organization and his shareholders. Yeah. Right. So I'm jumping all over the place, but ultimately to yeah. land on this this position that, uh, you know, so Palancis took the the – political sphere very seriously in, in, in opposition to a lot of Marxists who would who would just look at that as a reflection of the economic uh, yep. relations. And so Stuart Hall asks him and says, so what is your position? You've been accused of being this political autonomist, right? Of of eschewing the the uh, the economic relations of production and therefore you're no longer a Marxist. And Palancis responds something to the effect of well, you know, I do take the political very seriously, but at the end of the day, if you call yourself a Marxist, and I do, there's this pesky thing. I think pesky mm-hmm. is the way it's translated from French. There's this pesky thing called the relations of production that you ultimately have to account for. So I think that shows that that long-winded spiel, apologies for the length of that, is just to say that even in Poulancis's final days, the months leading up to his untimely death, he acknowledged that, yes, I do take the political realm seriously, but if you call yourself a Marxist, and I do, you ultimately have to link that up uh, with the relations of production. Uh, so so the, the political autonomists in the 80s go one step further, or many, many steps further. So maybe yeah. spell out that uh, difference there. Yeah. So um, the well, the political autonomists, and um, I'm specifically thinking of people working in political sociology to this day. People like Theta Scotch Polar, you know, Peter Evans, or some other very prominent scholars um, get you know they first get their bearings in a lot of these Marxist debates of the '60s and the '70s, but um, they bring in a very strong Weberian element to it. Um, in you know Weberianism really as a critique of neo-Marxism, so they argue that um, neo-Marxists are no matter how much they try, you know, this pesky idea of <clears throat> the relations of production as being you know either dominant or determinant in the last instance has to come in at some point. Um, and mm-hmm. for them, they they see this as kind of a just a very unsatisfying way of of uh, posing the question. So they really assert the autonomy of the state as a bureaucratic uh, and uh, sort of collective organization that whose primary focus is to um, claim the monopoly on legitimate violence within a given uh, territory and to, you know, in some cases uh, work for the reproduction of capitalism, but not necessarily. So they argue that the Marxists are way too functional about this whole thing, that someone like Poulantzis 
always sees the system as ultimately working in the interests of the capitalist class, even if it must, you know, in go against certain capitalists in the short term. Mm-hmm. Um, and for them, this is uh, this is just not a very satisfying way of, of answering the question. So um, they argue that uh, the New Deal is a favorite example of, of Theda Skoshpol, and she wrote a very prominent um, essay in 1980 sort of comparing and contrasting Marxist accounts of the New Deal and then advancing her own approach. Um, she basically argues that the New Deal went against the interests of many capitalists at the time. And it also, um, but it did not unanimously succeed in advancing their interests, even in the long term. So there were, so the New Deal is an example where um, historical uh, social forces were able to mobilize in such a way as to leave a historical mark on um, state policy in a way that Polonsis and these other people can't account for. Mm-hmm. Um so this is all kind of a long-winded way of saying that the state autonomy school really saw itself as a much, even much more um, overtly politicist corrective of Marxism. And I, I think it's interesting. I think at one point earlier you mentioned the political implications of this kind of thing in terms of neo-Marxist debates of the 70s versus the kind of failure of social democracy in the 1980s. It's, I don't think it's a coincidence that the state autonomy school emerges in the mid-1980s, um, just as, you know, in the midst of these kinds of transformations of Western economies that we consider to be neoliberal, or at least the origins of neoliberalism at the time, right, right. precisely because I think they're trying to assert the independence of the state as a way to, you know, ameliorate some of these transformations of capitalism that are that they see happening. So if social democracy can no longer rely on this kind of radical these kind of radical movements that you saw in the 1970s, if those have kind of fallen by the wayside, where else can we find a center for progressive policies to actually be implemented? And they right, basically, right. their answer is the state. The state bureaucracy is the one one uh, place where like progressive policies can actually situate themselves in, and protect themselves from this kind of neoliberalization of the social order as a whole. So we could really get into the weeds talking about some of the state autonomy stuff. You have a couple articles that you've already written and one in the works that's really fantastic and talking about uh, the transformations, uh, you know, with, with the, the Theta Scotch poll and some of these other uh, sociology, mm-hmm. uh, political sociology luminaries that, that are, you know, many of them still active and have written some important things. But it seems that the trajectory that we're really tracing here is that, the, you know, the Marxian conception of the state, starting really with Gramsci. And then moving into the neo-Marxists, C. Wright Mills does this early, and then uh, you know Miliband and Palancis pick up the torch. It really sparks uh, a new interest in the state. Um, we didn't talk about the behavioralists, but we certainly could have Robert Dahl, uh, David Easton, uh, you know, who who uh, recognized that the, their theories in the 1960s were insufficient in terms of handling social change and these kind of like mass class and uh, identity-based ruptures that were going on. Uh, you know, so it seems like even though what I'm getting at, the neo-Marxians really kicked off uh, this this wave of, of state theoretical orientation, the trend has been to slowly but surely demarxify uh, yeah. state theory ever since. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. It's uh, so I think like the, the critique that um, 
the state autonomous made of the neo-Marxist in the 1980s was, you know, it, it was effective for people writing after them because um, it managed to boil down some of the, you know, uh, the critique of Marxism to a cop- couple of primary points that then they didn't really need to engage with some of these other debates that we've talked about any longer. So the, and of course, then by the mid, by the late 1980s, you have the kind of general discrediting of Marxism that comes with the fall of the Soviet Union. So Marxism kind of becomes a persona non grata in, uh, sure. in Western, in, you know, Western political science, sociology, cultural studies in the 1990s and early 2000s. Um, I do think, though, that some of these theories have, I think, important insights for us to this day, um, especially because my my hunch is that discussions of the state tend to become much more prominent during moments of crisis. I think it wasn't a coincidence that uh, neo-Marxism flourished in the 1970s, just as these Western societies were undergoing significant structural changes after 1968. And I think in some ways our moment is analogous to to that, although, of course, nothing ever maps itself out perfectly uh, historically. But we do have the same question of the capitalist state is undergoing some kind of transformation, especially here in America with Donald Trump that has just completely thrown you know, a wrench into what we knew about the autonomy of the state. What do you do when there's this guy who you know, is actively trying to enrich himself and his own business partners at the expense of, you know, national policymaking as a whole. Um, does this mean we're back to Miliband and kind of do instrumentalist theories actually allow us to explain some of this? Or, and I mean, I'm still thinking through some of these ideas as well. Um, but, but at the same time, now you have nascent left movements like DSA who are grappling with this question of um, political power. And what is going to be the future of this organization in terms of electoral politics or mobilization in civil society? So I think we're coming around in some ways to a lot of these similar questions that we dealt with before. Right. I mean, it seems that the easy way to dismiss Marxism starting from the 1980s was to call it class, you know, God's oh, class reductivism. Um, or one of the, the the buzzwords to kill it right from the start is to 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 sort of slander it as grand theory. I'm sure you've heard that before, right? As an academic, Jesus, uh, Marxism is a grand theory that it's just way you know, and it's it's got some good ideas, but it's just you know, it doesn't get at the real micro levels of human interaction. So we just need to scrap it. Like there's that idea, right? But you see it once yeah. again reasserting itself. The the the, the primacy of class and class class struggle uh, alongside all of the interlocking oppressions uh, is really yeah. reasserting itself in a big way right now. And uh, I think the kind of work that you're doing and reasserting this uh, state theoretical orientation is just as important um, as, as any other kind of political activity right now, because we're really, you know, these are, this is the ground. The question of how do we get to socialism is, is a live question again. So that, you know, the state, we're getting to the, the, the big payoff here. We've covered a lot of theory, a lot of history, and the payoff here is going to be a specific kind of political intervention into the arguments of today. And uh, one of the one of the big, are, uh, you know, call it a punching bag, call it an adversary, call it a comradely debate, if you will, uh, is, is the argument that, you know, is in, going to be inevitable that we're going to need to have as, as, as socialists who think that the state is a key sector of power, 
right? Uh, we're going to have to duke it out a little bit with some of these libertarian communists who, uh, you know, by my estimation for sure, really give the state short shrift. They sort of caricature it as this kind of place of pure coercion and that the state is not a realm that can be sort of taken by socialists in order to find a way to move beyond it. Um, what, what are your immediate thoughts and how do you intervene in, in the strategic uh, debates of today? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, I, I guess I could pose this in a form of a question is that I would ask them what they see as the principal um, elements of what the state does and what its role is in today's society. Mm-hmm. And from that, um, whether they can envision any kind of positive function for it in the kind of you know, society that they would like to see. Um, if we see the state in, you know, entirely as a kind of coercive force, as you said, um, and you don't think that there are any positive functions that the state plays in terms of, you know, promoting things like equality, like, um, you know, protecting certain rights and freedoms for creating some kind of procedural form through which politics can be, you know, political decisions can be arrived at. Then, um, and if you think that politics ultimately is completely local, then I think that raises a lot of other potential dangers and difficulties. Um, for example, where you, you define what the boundaries of the local community would be, what would be the you know, um, grounds for participating or being excluded from these communities. Um, and also the fact that um, a lot of the times uh, political oppression happens on the local level rather than emanating from some kind of centralized mm. um, coercive authority. Mm-hmm. So how would we, you know, how would we address those difficulties given the absence of some kind of um, need to engage with the state? That's a good question because I'm jumping ahead here. We'll come back to cover the foundations, but then the, if, 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 if we're wedded to this extreme version of localism, how do we explain the civil rights movement? Right? Because mm-hmm. Bull Connor... <laughs> Right. down south with turning the dogs and the fire hoses on the young uh, black and white protesters. Uh, you know, he was not going to be brought to heel by the local white supremacists, uh, you know, because the, right. the, you know, young folks and the African-Americans who were tr- fighting for self-determination had been just systematically disenfranchised. It was, it was both their self-activity and the, which spurred on the intervention of the federal government, which mm-hmm. sort of gave them the nudge they needed uh, to overcome that kind of <laughs> Uh, direct Jim Crow white supremacy. And so this is a good play time to bring in an article by Eleanor Finley. Eleanor Finley did an interview on this is hell podcast uh, coming out of Chicago radio. It's also online. If you're not listening to this is hell, you should, it's a good show. Uh, But Eleanor Finley was on there. Uh, She has an article in roar magazine called the new municipal movement. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, She argues therein uh, much more than simply a strategy for local governance. Radical radical municipalism is emerging as a path to social freedom and democracy beyond the state. Now, social freedom and democracy beyond the state. Municipalism is a localism that attempts to move beyond the state. We've seen this come up in DSA in various sections. Some people have called a version of this uh, sewer socialism, 
which is kind of a jokey way of talking about like, oh, we need to elect city officials who are openly socialist. And, and that has slightly different trajectories and lineages from municipalism. But talk to me about municipalism. It seems to carry a lot of, um, you know, street cred. A lot of people like this inside of DSA as a viable uh, socialist struggle to, to move beyond the state. Uh, what, what do you make of it? Well, I mean, I, I don't want to be uh, entirely critical of municipalism and, you know, the way that it's defined and described, because I do think that there is, you know, a lot of um, room and activity for local community initiatives, sort of initiatives to build community power, especially um, of the kinds that DSA um, tries to, you know, play a role in. Sure, sure. Um, I And I think also um, municipalism has, of course, become much more important since since the election, when, you know, we have this talk of sanctuary cities and of ways in which communities can mobilize to protect um, the most vulnerable of, of peoples within them. So I think um, even like as a defensive uh, defensive bulwark against sort of, you know, uh, what's his face, um, Jeff Sessions, uh, Department of Justice, it can, it can have certain positive effects. Um, I would simply caution against boiling all politics down to the local level, to the municipal level, mm -hmm. without then asking this question of how do we build up from there into a more federal structure? Or even um, how do we um, how do we not simply opt out of participating in the current ways that we can within political institutions, but try to create some kind of linkage between these municipal movements on the ground and more long-term um, and more sort of... Uh, longstanding institutions and policies. And I mean, I don't think that there's a clear answer to this yet, but I think that it still requires us to engage with, uh, to some, to some degree with this question of what is the current state and what is its, what are its functions and how, um, how should we orient themselves, uh, ourselves to it as a political, political entity. I think without doing that, we're going to be spinning the wheel into these community initiatives that don't, you know, that can't sustain themselves for the long term. Yeah, I like that distinction because really um, that was a nice corrective uh, to the way I, I put it. My, my opposition is not to municipalism or sewer socialism as such, but it's the my opposition is to the way in which Eleanor Finley and some other proponents of it, they – they they do as a kind of, I would say it's kind of a sneaky thing. I don't think it's 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 intentional. I don't think they're doing anything, you know, intentionally like uh uh you know, openly deceitful or whatever. But what they're doing is they're tying that sort of localism, municipalism with a kind of state blind or at least like state ignorant, openly ignorant of the state kind of approach. Um where I don't think you have to do both that. Right. I think you can you can do both. You can look at sort of broad federal uh, sort of like movements, the Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, phenomenon and all that. Now, let me just let me just get to the brass tacks of the question. I, my suspicion is that people renounce the state as a site of struggle just because it's big. Right. Is that too simplistic? Like, it's just, it's big. It seems like it's never going to change. It's a juggernaut. I'm not really sure how I can go in there and intervene. It just seems too unwieldy. And so the knee-jerk thing to do in, in light of that is to kind of just ignore it and maybe try to find a workaround. Do you, do you, think, that's, yeah. do you think that's being charitable or, or, or not, not charitable? No, 
I, I think you're you're really onto something because um, there's this tendency to, you know, see the state as a monolithic block that more and more is um, actually, uh, you know, sealed off from the demos as a whole, mm-hmm. and therefore the only possible solution where it actually might seem more feasible and easier to do is to build alternative sources of power, sort of um, that do not really engage with this entity. But I think actually what's where this kind of literature that we talked about um, of post-war Marxism can actually provide us with some interesting insights is that we don't necessarily have to see the state as this um, monolithic entity that is, um, you know, free of internal contradictions that's free of spaces for intervention and participation. And that actually, um, you know, it, I, I, so I think the challenge before us is to actually identify what those contradictions are to find creative ways to press the state in order to, um, not only enable greater sort of equality and justice, which is, which, you know, should be our goal as socialists, but also of making that those spaces more responsive to the needs of citizens and of democratic politics, broadly speaking. And I think that's possible to do, provided that we don't just reject the state offhand, but actually I'm treated as a, as a complex social relation or an entity mm-hmm. in which there is space for agency, provided that we first, we have a strategy and we know what we're dealing with. That's well said. I mean, I think that uh, one of the recurring themes on my show here is that uh, we want to sort of reinstitute what I'm calling in skin scare quotes, a left social democratic uh, ethos, a common sense, right? Which is just to say that, yeah, the state is a site of contestation and it is a site, uh, it is a space where we should make demands. We should demand that rather than just the state being a site that subjects its citizenry to the demands of neoliberal capitalism, to the quote-unquote free market, right, which is what we've had for the last 35 years. It should be a site where we make demands of the state to provide for the well-being of its citizenry. And and it's, you know, so that's kind of the broad appeal. And you've really laid out, you've laid out in very close detail in terms of like how that plays out pressing producing contradictions and pressing yeah sure right the state it's a capitalist state and ultimately it has it's going to protect the profits of the corporations within its borders right there's there's certain contradictions of global capitalism where that has to happen but there's wiggle room in between and the more we press the state to provide for the well-being of our citizenry, the more we open up the rifts in those contradictions. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and, and contradictions yeah, so. are the source of, of ruptures uh, for the socialist movement today. Absolutely. And I, I like the way also that you put um, – uh, phrase it this way, Adam, of uh, pressing demands on the state or making demands on the state mm-hmm. because um, I see that uh, – you know, this kind of engagement with the state needs to be a long-term project of the democratization of both state and society. Um, and it's a, it's a constant struggle that requires, you know, constant political engagement, but, um, democracy itself is not an end state, right? It's not, it's not an end point that we can sort of say that here we have concrete liberal democratic institutions mm-hmm. and therefore, you know, on our polity scale or on our, um, some kind of, you know, scale of measure, we are a liberal democracy. 
democratization in America has been a historical phenomenon. And I don't think it's a phenomenon that um, that has ended, that ended in 1989 or, you know, in the present. So um, our task then is to press for this constant democratization. And we do that through engaging with the state and making demands on it. Well said. I want to end with this. Here's here's kind of my formulation that I've been returning to. And I, I think we've talked a little bit about this. Uh, and, and you're in broad agreement. And I'm sure you can expand on it for our audience and for myself here. There's a lot of discussion about nowadays in particular around DSA and elsewhere, right? About, oh, which which ideological orientation do you subscribe to, right? Are you, uh, like we said, are you a libertarian socialist? Are you uh, a communist? Are you a member of the Communist Caucus? Are you a social democrat? Are you a Harringtonite? Are you a this? And everyone is really taking their ideological affinity really seriously as though they're walking down the buffet line of ideological orientations and they're sort of picking from the one that they think is best, right? And I used to get really into this and, and, you know, almost obsess over it like a lot of people. But nowadays, I just don't have time for it. And here's why. This might be a little simplistic, but I think it's an important orientation. There's only one capitalist state. It's the one that we've got. You know, there's only one system of legitimate representation in that state. And it's not good, but it's the one we've got. You know, there, there are only, there's only one set of institutions that, you know, that actually provide or don't provide things for its citizenry. And it's definitely not perfect, but it's the one we've got. And so the only ideological or strategic orientation I care about anymore is looking at the concrete reality that's before us as the terrain of struggle that has to condition, uh, you know, uh, uh, the moves that we have to make in order to try to pave that road to socialism. And I think that's why state theory is so important because that's how we see that terrain. It's literally our eyes. State theory is our, is our eyes. It's the way that we view the world as a chessboard. Uh, and we can see certain dynamics and rifts openings over here, uh, we see foreclosures over there. Um, and I think you and I have talked about this a little bit and you're in broad agreement about that. So maybe elaborate on that and we can end there. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think you really sort of nailed it because I would just say that, you know, it's this, this way of, as you call it, a way of seeing is, is a good way of putting it. It's, it's a way of representing political reality to ourselves for the purpose of figuring out what, political strategy we then need to take, you know, assuming that we have kind of a common end goal in mind of, you know, we're all in DSA, let's say we're all broadly in agreement on the kind of society that we would like to see, or at least what the ideals of that society should be. Um, Then the question is, how do we approach the existing structures of political power? Um, And the first step of doing that, of figuring that out is then to ask ourselves, what do we consider political power to be? And what what do we consider to be the role of the state and the way that and what do we consider to be the the way that it operates or how do we understand how it operates? So um, I see this and, you know, my work um, as both a scholar and a kind of uh, committed uh, democratic citizen is to, um, you know, contribute in some ways to laying out the problems before us which then we can take up as, you know, as politics down the road. 
That's really well said. I mean, I, I think the work that you're doing is just as important as anybody else. You know, whether you're on the barricade or you're walking the picket line, uh, developing the uh, theoretical and strategic orientations and, and the, these ways of seeing uh, by understanding our society, our state, and the power structures and the class structures that are around us. It's a task that, in my estimation, it's really been uh, neglected, I think, uh, over the past 30 or 40 years. Not not totally. There's still a lot of people who are doing this, a lot of noble work that's sure. coming out. Absolutely. Uh, but, but by and large, it's been neglected. Um, and uh, so, you know, I just... I'm thankful that you're out there, Raphael, and uh, I look forward to to reading more of your work. I hope that now that you're done with the arduous task of putting out that dissertation, I hope that you'll you'll popularize uh, some of this stuff for the masses, put it out there in Jacobin and elsewhere uh, in more digestible versions for the normies, uh, because we've really got to start seeing the state as this field of contestation of art, yeah. the articulation of class forces. And then we have to sort of uh, play ball in that field. So, yeah. Likewise, yeah. Adam, thanks a lot for, uh, for having me on. It's been, it's been a really, um, really, really good to talking on this thing. Yeah, sure. Let's stay in touch. Have you back on the show when the uh, new, new things crop up, but uh, Raphael, thanks for joining us on the dead planet society. Thanks a lot. Take care. <laughs> And that is the end of this week's two-part series on Making State Theory Great Again. I hope we inspired all of you to take a hard look at Marxian and Neo-Marxian State Theory and to start thinking about how it relates to your organizing and to your way of theorizing socialism and capitalism today. Thanks again to Raphael for joining me. This is part one of a multi-part series that I'm running all through the fall. It's called Labor in the Capitalist State, Fall 2017. Grab your pencils, your trapper keepers, and your notebooks, folks. We're going back to school in the Dead Pundit Society, and there's a lot more where this came from. Next week, joining me is the Leo Panich. I referred to him in this week's episode. He is a luminary, a state theoretician himself. And he's a super smart guy, a mentor, and close dear friend of mine. And I'm really excited to bring him on the show. We're going to be talking about a lot of things, everything, actually. The man's incredibly uh, uh, knowledgeable about socialist politics and the left. But primarily, I want to focus on Jeremy Corbyn and the UK Labor Party. Uh, they have made every effort to institute a radical even socialist government in the UK state, and they have every intention of taking power and instituting their manifesto. So we're going to talk about the implications, the pitfalls, and the contradictions of governing from the radical left, and Leo Panich is just the man to do it. So get excited, people. Lots of good stuff coming your way. Head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and support the new left agenda and get some subscriber-only content. All right, until next week, Dead Pundit, out. Oh, this new crazy mother...